Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. Everybody's favorite segment. Everybody's favorite segment. <laughs> Today we have nothing. No, no, we <laughs> really don't. It's been a day for both of us. I'm coming in hot, and I'm not. No, we're not even talking about. Yeah, it. Uh, it, it's it's been it, easy, easy. I'm out here fighting City Hall like fucking Serpico. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, get a load of this, this one, one, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, may I recommend supporting uh, Chris Miller in his 2020 Brackenridge mayoral bid? Oh, absolutely. As I'm soon as you find out who the mayor is and who you're running against. I've lived here for 10 years. I have absolutely no idea who the mayor is. Uh, well, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I'm your co-host, Chris Miller. And it's not just the two of us today. We are joined by a friend of the show, Tim Sladisky. Tim, how are you doing today? Good. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Ah, welcome to the show, man. Welcome to the show. So, today, uh, we know we previewed this last week, we are uh, honoring the release of HBO's Deadwood movie, by talking about one of the characters within that film who best exemplifies what our podcast is about. And that is none other than Calamity Jane. Yeah, you really thought we were going to go with a dude here, didn't you? You misogynist pricks. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. No, yeah. Uh, Calamity Jane, uh, presented to you by Kerfuffle Chris and Unfortunate <laughs> Misunderstanding Rob. So, Martha Jane Cannery, better known as Calamity Jane, was a frontierswoman, scout, bullwhacker, Prostitute, drunkard, and all-around hell-raising folk hero who embodied the spirit of the American West in the 19th century better than most. That's a hell of a resume. It really is. It's a hell of a resume, especially for a woman. And this is the stuff yeah. that's true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <and> it, <laughs> that's going to that's gonna change here. Yeah. There, yeah, there's a lot that's not. In an era when most women had few options in life, Jane used a gun, whiskey bottle, and her own toughness to carve them out herself. Said to be able to outswill, outshoot, and outcuss any man around. Now, Jane isn't a villain, but we decided to cover her because she's nothing if not a rebel and a rogue of the First Order. Now, we've also decided to, like I said, have her as our topic this week because of the release of the new HBO Deadwood movie, as well as our love for the TV series that preceded it. Now, the problem with the story of Calamity Jane is the problem with pretty much every major folk hero and major figure in the American West. Most of the information, uh, even the simplest version of who she is that exists, are almost certainly riddled with half-truths, and most of it is based on either newspaper articles, which weren't that concerned at the time with being completely accurate, folk stories from second-hand sources, or from Jane's autobiography, which was written more as a promotional pamphlet to help her make a living later in life. <laughs> now, it's tough to know where the true story of Jane ends and the legend begins. Now, let's talk about a little bit, let's talk a little bit about Deadwood. If you haven't seen Deadwood on HBO... Well, then, then you're just a hoopblehead. It's yeah. On, yeah, it's on HBO now. And you're missing out. Yeah, it's on HBO now. You're, you're missing out. It's three seasons. Binge it. Watch the show. It's incredible. The writing is astounding. The character work is incredible. And uh, especially Robin Weigert's performance as Calamity Jane in this show and the movie. She's so good. She's she so good. Yeah. I mean, she should be an absolute superstar. Mm-hmm. Just because she doesn't of even time. look the same. Like if you've ever seen her outside of Deadwood, oh, you she's not recognized. Yeah, she's person. beautiful. Yeah, it's yeah. I have such an enormous amount of love for that show. And uh, fun fact: 
There are 1.56 utterances of the word fuck per minute of footage in the series. Good. Yeah, how did the uh, how did the movie amend that? Did it change? I, that did, I did not get those statistics. Do they have baseball reference for like swearing in movies? I I, I don't know. I, I'd have to. There's an algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to check the foul language saber metrics on that. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure. So we have three primary sources today. The first, Calamity Jane: The Life and Legend of Martha Jane Cannery by DJ Herda. And DJ Herta is one of those guys who, he, he was born in Chicago, but he's lived out west most of his life. And he's one of those those older guys that if you ever go out west, you'll just see. And you know the kind of guy I'm talking about. Oh, you're talking about DJ Herta. No, these, these are the guys who, well, oh no, he did it again. <laughs> that's it. I'm taking the headset off. That's a wrap. You guys uh, have Steve fun Bonnet it. is rolling over in his grave because he used that sound for somebody else. So, but he's one of those guys. If you ever watch like one of those old west documentaries on the History Channel from the late '90s, early 2000s, those guys they have the bolo tie. They're definitely got a belt buckle with turquoise on it. They're wearing a plaid shirt, they got a bit of a gut, they have an interesting facial hair. DJ Hurd is one of those guys. They all have unique and special facial hairs. They really do. I mean, what? Uh, granted, so do we, but... <laughs> um, I mean, mine's just kind yeah. of completely unhinged at this point. It's just, it's the Calamity Jane of beards. <laughs> it's all over the joint. Our second, it up as yeah. it goes. Our second source is the book Deadwood by Pete Dexter. And while this podcast is about a person... The town of Deadwood, South Dakota, is going to play a pivotal role in this story. Mm-hmm. And we also have the autobiography of Calamity Jane by Martha Jane Cannery herself. <laughs> and this thing is... There's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> it is full of bullshit. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, should we just get down to telling the story? Let's get into it. Let's get down, let's All get down right. to the text. Martha Jane Cannery was born on May 1st, 1852 in Mercer County, Missouri. The eldest daughter of a farmer named Robert Wilson Cannery and his wife Charlotte who would go on to have three more daughters and two sons. Charlotte already had a reputation as a bit of a wild woman. She was known to drink, smoke cigars, and curse freely, which was not typical behavior for a woman in the 1850s. Robert had a reputation for laziness, but he was actually fairly well off in terms of the lands and goods he possessed, with his real estate being valued in the 1860 census at about $1,900, which is about hundred and twenty grand today. And that was a fair bit of money at the time. Now, Martha had a pleasant enough childhood, it was said, playing with her siblings and the neighbor children. She likely received some schooling, uh, although likely didn't get further than the equivalent of about a second or third grade education. Now, the coming of the Civil War years began to mark her family's existence, first with the death of her younger brother, Silas, and then the tensions. What the hell happened to the dog? I don't know. We'll move past that. I'm I'm afraid to look at what just happened. Uh, and the tensions that began to fill this part of Missouri due to its status as a border state during the Civil War. Now, Charlotte was a secesh, a Confederate sympathizer, which didn't sit well with their pro-Union neighbors. Now, no member of the family played any significant part in the war, and Mercer County remained untouched by the combat, although political tensions ran very high by the time 1864 rolled around. And so, either because of these tensions, or possibly to avoid a court appearance because of legal troubles, surrounding debt and missing bonds from his late father's estate, Robert packed his family up, pulled their savings, and after a short visit to Charlotte's family in Iowa, joined a wagon train on a long, arduous journey to the gold fields of the Montana Territory. Now, as anyone who's ever played Oregon Trail knows, the wagon journey west can be long, hard, and dangerous. But it was during this journey that Jane really began to come into her own. Now, from growing up in Missouri farm country, 
She had already acquired a significant level of horsemanship, and she was a pretty good shot to boot. Now, taller, stronger, and more outgoing than almost all girls her age, the 12-year-old used the journey to become even more accomplished at these Western wilderness skills and was soon seen as one of the boys. Five months after departing with the wagon train, the family finally arrived in Nevada City, Montana, where Robert soon turned his attention to panning and digging for gold in the rolling foothills of the Rockies. Nevada City was the perfect place like this for a man to seek his fortune. The American West at this time was absolutely full of these boom towns. You get to a point in the Western territories where silver pops up, gold pops up, and what pops up? Mining camps, towns, cities. I mean, their their population We're just as far as the eye can see. Yeah, yep. their population just booms. Um, at one statistic, uh, Virginia City, Montana, within uh, six months of news of a gold strike in 1864, the population went from 600 to 5,000. I've always been fascinated by like these gold rush towns mm-hmm. just because of this giant influx of people. How do you handle that? You don't. I mean, they were almost completely lawless. You've got to hope that they bring enough materials and infrastructure with them to get set up. I mean, imagine if Pittsburgh suddenly had two million people show up. That, I mean, on, that's man. what it is. It's We can't even handle a day afternoon, like the day or afternoon baseball game during the week. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's it's... It's insane how fast some of these towns grew. And some of these people showed up with nothing. And so you you go to this place where there's maybe a few buildings, maybe a, a saloon, a brothel, a hotel, maybe a general store, maybe a hardware store. And you're expecting everything to be there. I do like that the first thing that always popped up was either a bar or a brothel. Yeah. The hotel was always later. Mm-hmm. But it was always bars, brothels. It was the first one. Yeah. I mean, I so, get it. The essentials. <laughs> now, the Alder Gulch gold strike in Montana gave up $30 million worth, which is $4.6 billion in today's dollars, of nuggets and gold dust in a 10-square-mile area. So there was definitely wealth to be had if you knew where and how to look for it. Unfortunately, Robert Cannery didn't. The Canneries immediately fell on hard times, made worse by the harsh Montana winter, and only survived because Jane went out and hunted for game to keep the family fed. Charlotte went to work as a prostitute, and Robert decided that instead of panning for gold, he was going to make his fortune as a professional gambler. <laughs> which went about as well as you would expect. Why not, I say. Yeah, why not? Now, things were so bad for the family that the first mention of the canneries in any kind of newspaper was on New Year's Eve 1864 in the Montana Post in an article called Provision for the Destitute Poor, which highlighted the plight of three young girls with the name Cannery. The article read, quote, the father, it seems, is a gambler in Nevada City. The mother, a woman of the lowest grade. A calico slip without an additional cloth without any additional clothing was all that defended the poor children from the inclemency of the weather. We understand that the little ones returned from seeking aid to Nevada City, where they have existed for some time. The parents are inhuman brutes who have deserted their poor, unfortunate children and have displayed a most flagrant and wanton instance of unnatural conduct. End quote. Now, Robert finally decided uh, that trying to strike it rich in Nevada City prospecting for gold and gambling wasn't going to work. So he decided to make life better for his family by packing them up and moving them to nearby Blackfoot City, Montana, site of another recent strike, in order to try prospecting for gold and gambling. However, things went from bad to worse when in uh, January 1866, Charlotte grew inexplicably ill and died. Jobless and despondent, 
Robert once again uprooted his family to try to find a place in the Mormon town of Salt Lake City, Utah. Mm. Now, this makes oh, a nice change. Going on. Well, this well this <laughs> makes a nice change because gambling was outlawed in Salt Lake City in 1866. Yeah, so there's there's going to be very little competition for yeah. a gambler such as himself. Yeah. Now it's the Mormons, so other things that are outlawed include um, coffee. Coffee, alcohol, <laughs> fun, fun, joy, happiness, <laughs> and uh, getting married after the age of eighteen. <laughs> These old nineteen-year-old 19 spinsters. Yeah, I, 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 I should be more fair about this, but your uh, your religion was founded by a con man. Yeah, it's dumb. dumb I mean, dumb, it's, dumb, it's, dumb. it's it's. I'm really it's, looking forward to our Brigham Young I, one. I feel the same about Scientology. You yep. you, you, you got duped. I'm sorry. Um. Imagine like being told like, oh, "Sorry, guys, can't have coffee." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think. Can so. I have a gun in my mouth, please? <laughs> Instead, that's illegal too. All you would get forever is just root beer. <laughs> but you get a planet of your own after you die. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Now here's some magic underwear and an 11 year old wife. Yeah, tune in for our, our Brigham Young and joseph smith episodes like they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're coming <laughs> they're coming we come for that ass you hear us mormon church <laughs> no he, uh, robert managed to acquire a small plot of land to farm and began to actually set down roots only to die within a year so now the care of the family fell to jane only 14 at the time now since women couldn't inherit property and her brothers were too young to inherit property all of the family's assets were acquired in a pretty hostile manner by salt lake city's town leaders and the children were taken into foster homes all except for jane who refused to be taken in and she was a 14 year old girl so she was perfect marrying age so they pretty much set about trying to you know farm her off as a sister wife Jane wasn't having any. No, she was not, not big into that one. I did hear that a lot of people during this uh, during this era of Jane's life, she was described as being very, very attractive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Which is weird because in about five years, in her younger days, she, she was going she to be was described considered as very, very pretty, incredibly unattractive. So this the, the, depends the, on what you're attracted to. Well, that's true. But like you know, it's she was very masculine. Mm-hmm. She was very muscular. Uh, she was tall. She, she like was supposedly almost six feet tall. She, I mean, she was tall. She was strong. She was an alcoholic. Yeah. Her features were drawn. So in about five years, her the life, the, the path she is about to go down is not an easy one. Right. So so buckle up for this shit. <laughs> yeah, it's about to it's about to get a little bit uh, a little little. Uh, we're getting rough here. Little rough. We're getting rough. So after spending the better part of two years scraping a living from what small job she could and pretty much living on the streets of this small town, Jane finally picked up stakes and made her way to Fort Bridger, Wyoming, an important post on the trail to the west. Now, she made a good impression, being young, outgoing, and by all accounts very pretty, as you mentioned, and she caused a stir as she was a young woman traveling alone and traveling armed. (laughs) (laughs) She keeps that motherfucking thing on her. Yeah. Now, she was, uh, she was taken in by a major, Patrick Gallagher, and his wife, Fanny. But life among the respectable, the respectable sort soon began to chafe at Jane. And before long, a rebellious spirit got the better of her. Now, the Gallaghers soon moved to the mining boomtown of South Pass City, Utah. And they did all they could to try to train Jane in the ways of ladylike behavior and domesticity. But Jane, of course, resisted. And when Fanny Gallagher struck Jane for being too willful, Jane responded by absolutely kicking the shit out of her so severely that a town committee was convened to investigate the incident. Jesus. 
According to a later article from the Mormon newspaper, the Uinta Chieftain, quote, The spirit of original sin itself possessed the girl, and before they had been in their new home six months, the whole camp rang with the depraved escapades of Martha Jane. Young as she was, she took to depravity naturally. At last, an outrageous offense moved Mrs. Gallagher to inflict a thrashing. Martha raised a howl of brutal treatment and responded in greater fashion, and a miners' committee investigated and came to the conclusion that if the girl was thrashed every day, it wouldn't improve matters. She's writing all kinds of glowing articles about the Canadians. <laughs> Mrs. Gallagher now refused to have anything more to do with her, and the miners raised money to send her to the railroad. This was done, and Martha soon made a name for herself along the line of the Union Pacific. Now, so Jane was sent by stagecoach to a town called Piedmont, Utah, which was home of the workers' base camp for the latest branch of the Union Pacific Railroad. She started working odd jobs around the camp, especially as a nanny, and was once fired by a family after she showed up to a fancy dress party in a full soldier's uniform. Now, how she acquired the uniform is not revealed to us. It doesn't say. Soon, however, her size and strength became an asset as she went to work as the first female laborer hired by the Union Pacific Railroad. That's she insane. Went to, she went and to work as a, as a roughneck. Yeah. <laughs> that is one thing that actually happened. So she went to work laying track and apparently reveled in the rough-and-tumble male-dominated existence. She finally found her place. It was said that she even led a small workers' revolt when they were owed many weeks of back pay, going so far as to block the line being used by the vice president of the Union Pacific, Thomas Clark Durant, and holding him captive until he wired back east to have the money sent via Western Union to appease his captors. <laughs> uh, that is another story. We can't really prove that. We do know there was a workers' uprising. We don't actually know what part Jane played in it. Now, by 1870, Jane had apparently grown restless, and that year's census for Uinta County shows, that, shows her name to be missing, so she clearly moved on. It appears to all intents and purposes that Jane spent the next several years living as a drifter. She moved all around the American West, going from Boomtown to work camp, Gold Strike to Army Fort, and spent these years living hand-to-mouth doing anything she could for work, including as a laborer, a caretaker, a mail rider. Uh, supposedly, from time to time, she did engage in the world's oldest profession. <clears throat> now, a mail rider. <laughs> Tim, I got bad news. <laughs> Uh, no, she, she, it said she went to work as a prostitute. Now, you know, you do anything you can to put food into your mouth if you're hungry enough, so. And, you know, there was a demand for it. These are, for the most part, very male-heavy communities, so there's a lot of single men around. Not a lot of women. If you have a valuable asset to people, you use it to make money, I suppose. Uh, the next instance where Jane's exact whereabouts are known comes in 1875, where she disguised herself as a soldier in order to join the Jenny Expedition, which was an exploratory survey sponsored by the U.S. Geological Survey meant to map the Black Hills region of the Dakotas as fully and completely as possible and to confirm reports of gold finds. Now, by the time her true identity was discovered, the, the expedition was too far into the wilderness to send her back, so she was demoted to a teamster, camp cook, and medical assistant. It was during her time with the Jenny Expedition that the moniker Calamity Jane first pops up in a Cheyenne, Wyoming newspaper article reporting on word of a wild-natured woman traveling with the survey. According to her autobiography, uh, however, Jane acquired the nickname several years earlier in 1872. She writes, quote, It was on Goose Creek, Wyoming, where the town of Sheridan is now located. Captain Egan was in command of the post. We were ordered out to quell an uprising of the engines and were out for several days, had numerous skirmishes during which six of the soldiers were killed and several severely wounded. 
When on returning to the post, we were ambushed about a mile and a half from our destination. When fired upon, Captain Egan was shot. I was riding in advance, and on hearing the firing, turned to my saddle and saw the captain reeling in his saddle as though about to fall. I turned my horse and galloped back with all haste to his side and got there in time to catch him as he was falling. I lifted him onto my horse in front of me and succeeded in getting him safely to the fort. Captain Egan, on recovering, laughingly said, I name you Calamity Jane, the heroine of the plains. I have borne that name up to the present time. Now, after wintering at Fort Laramie in 1876, Jane again donned a soldier's disguise and joined the forces of General George Crook, who had been dispatched at the outbreak of war against the Lakota Sioux tribes. What's particularly interesting is that she did this not once, but twice. <laughs> after she was discovered, she was sent away with the wounded, and uh, she found another disguise, came right back, rejoined the regiment, tracked him down... <laughs> I heard her nickname was from her saying when she was young and good-looking that people would to date her was yeah. court calamity. Or there were there are a bunch of different sources for what her nickname was. Some say she was good in a calamity. Others say she was a walking calamity. She had been raised in calamity. Did all the from her time as a nurse. Yeah, the dealing with the calamity. The calamity. It, it's. I mean, there's a bunch of different things. We can be sure of one thing: she probably lied about hers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, now, it has been rumored, but not confirmed, uh, rumored by Jane herself, uh, that Jane's second removal happened not two weeks before June 25th, 1876. The unit she was removed from was the 7th U.S. Cavalry. Their commander was a man named George Armstrong Custer. And the significant event of June 25th, gentlemen? Little Bighorn. Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand. Yep, didn't go I was almost killed at Custer's Last Stand. The... <laughs> The snowball of bullshit continues to roll down the hill. So Jane was sent south to Custer City, South Dakota, where she was arrested four times in five days for (laughs) intoxication and disorderly conduct. (laughs) Now that we know is true because of their records. Right. Custer City caught a break from Hurricane Jane when she was shipped to Fort Laramie, and there she was introduced to another legendary Wild West figure, Wild Bill Hickok. Now, Jane's autobiography makes a simple notation of their introduction, stating only that the two met at Laramie and started out for the new mining boomtown of Deadwood in order to purchase gold claims. What she omitted, apparently, was that she was volunteered to the party by the fed-up commander of Fort Laramie, (laughs) who dealt with quite enough of her shenanigans, thank you very much, including three more arrests for theft and attempting to get some of the garrison soldiers drunk on duty. (laughs) So released from the stockade, Jane packed some buckskins, a revolver, a rifle, a knife, a whip, and a five-gallon keg of whiskey. (laughs) For quote-unquote medicinal purposes. And set off for Deadwood. Now for Jane, if any town could claim to be her favorite, it was Deadwood in the Dakota Territory. It was the town where she felt most at home, could always get reacquainted with old pals, and always had work, despite a reputation for getting roaring drunk at one of the town's several saloons and stumbling into the street in the dead of night to fire, fire her pistols at the moon, which, according to DJ Herta, was a favorite hobby of Jane's. Plus it had an awesome name. I mean, yeah, Deadwood. Deadwood's just a great town. It's, yeah, I've, Deadwood I, and the Black Hills, like, oh, everything about that. <laughs> have either of you guys home. been? I have I not. Today, I, I was fortunate enough to go there. I, I was... I went through the Black Hills. I want to say it was maybe 18, 19. Deadwood Camp. It's it's still a pretty cool town. I mean, it's a hell of a setting. The Black Hills are intense. 
Um, and the town itself was built for a character like Calamity Jane. Deadwood didn't exist until after gold was discovered in the Black Hills in 1874. And the town rose up out of a gulch in the middle of nowhere, and within a, less than a year, the population had topped 5,000 people, more than four times what the population of Deadwood is today. It was full of enterprising and unscrupulous people. First and foremost was pimp and entertainment entrepreneur Al Swearingen, who lured young girls to Deadwood with the promise of work, only to force them into prostitution in his famed Gem Theater. There was prostitute turned madam, turned professional gambler, turned trick shot artist, turned saloon owner Kitty Leroy. Uh, again, quite an interesting resume. Uh, who traveled to Deadwood in the same caravan as Hickok and Jane and was later murdered by her jealous fifth husband. Uh, she was 26 at the time. Oh, nice. <laughs> Charlie Utter was with them too, right? Yeah, there was businessman Charlie Utter. Yeah, they, they rode in in Charlie Utter's wagon train. Yep. Charlie yeah, Utter was the one who set it all up, uh, who was a friend of Hickok's, and he was responsible for establishing the first dedicated shipping and delivery service in the Western Territories. There was E.B. Farnham, the town's first mayor, postmaster, head of the fire department, head of the first school board, and justice of the peace. Glove enthusiast. <laughs> who, was, <laughs> who was actually far more upstanding than he is apparently portrayed in the show. Apparently, E.B. Farnham was kind of a good guy. He was all about organization. He was all about putting resources yeah, in place. Yeah, he was the unanimous pick for mayor. Yeah. So. Uh, there was Eleanor Dumont, a professional gambler and morphine addict, uh, later a brothel owner, who was known as Madame Moustache for the line of dark hair on her upper lip. Oh. So. That could be my drag name. Great. If I name. do that. Hey, I'm pretty great. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, there so was. I, I do know. I know a Cindy Crotchford. Yeah. And an Aaron Kokovich. <laughs> What a great drag name. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's that was, incredible. That's my aside, but I just had to. Oh, Aaron Kokovich. It's oh, just eloquent yeah. in its brevity. <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, back to Deadwood where everybody's doing heroin calling each other cocksucker. Yeah. There was, uh, <laughs> there was Dora Dufran, another, fa- uh, another female brothel owner who stayed in that line of work up till the day of her death in 1934. There were quite a few madams. 1934? In, uh, 1934. Damn. Wow. Okay. She was apparently the first person to coin the term cat house. Huh. Really? Mm-hmm. Because she had Charlie Utter ship in 35 cats. She was quite the cat fancier. Oh, okay, makes sense. So was Kim Dickens' character based on that character on Deadwood a little bit, maybe? Uh, uh, yeah, Joni Stubbs. It seems like Joni was kind yeah. of an amalgamation of all of the... Joni Stubbs was kind of, yeah, kind of an amalgamation of all of them, but more Dora Dufran than anybody. Uh, you had A.W. Merrick, who began the Black Hills Weekly Pioneer, the first newspaper in the Dakota Terry, which is actually still in print to this day, with a circulation of 5,000. That's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, you had Jack Langriche, Irish com- uh, comedic performer and theater troupe manager, who went on to be the first state senator elected in Ohio. And you have my personal favorite character, Samuel Fields, oh, yeah. who became oh, yeah. the de facto leader of Deadwood's small black community and was a fast talker and eloquent public speaker, whose uh, biggest claim was that he was actually a Union general in the Civil War. Uh, spoiler alert, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, he, he, turns out... Uh, turns out, yeah. So Deadwood, despite all of its colorful characters, was not a pleasant place to be most of the time. The town was practically lawless, and murders, assaults, and robberies were frequent, and when there was justice, it was never fair or impartial. 
Housing was at a premium. Most of the people coming to strike it rich in the gold claims lived in tents or small wooden shanties if they had a place to live in at all. Uh, men far outnumbered women by more than 20 to 1, as most of the men coming to seek their fortunes didn't bring their families with them, as Jane's father apparently decided to was a good idea. Uh, finally, disease outbreaks struck hard and struck often. Uh, smallpox, diphtheria, cholera, all of them would sweep through the town at various points. And it was into this paradise that Jane rode with Wild Bill Hickok in early July 1876 to great fanfare for Merrick's newspaper. So by this point, her reputation precedes her. And we and it's Jane being mentioned by her moniker, Calamity Jane. That's the name given in the article. So it's like, oh, Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane are riding into town. So her myth had been growing. Word was starting to get around about this woman. Uh, she set up in Hickok and Utter's camp, mostly for the company, but probably for the better food as well, and immediately went about her usual activities in a new place, trying to find whatever work she could of making an absolute shit show nuisance of herself. <laughs> <laughs> now, for those of you out there listening who don't know anything about Wild Bill Hickok, he was a former fugitive turned soldier, spy, scout, Indian fighter, gambler, and lawman who was probably the most famous figure in the American West in 1876. He's pretty bad. He's, he's still... Probably the most famous figure in the American yeah. West. By, yeah, by far. Um, and from what we know, during their journey to Deadwood, Wild Bill and Jane formed a bond of some sort. Now, some say they became lovers. Uh, Jane claimed in her 1896 biography that she had been married to Bill for a short time, but later to be, uh, only to be divorced. Um, he divorced her to marry Agnes Lake, although there's no actual evidence to support her claim, like every other claim made in her autobiography this okay i'm just gonna lay this down now instead of me having to say probably not evidence to support her claim that she makes in her autobiography if it's from her autobiography there's no evidence to support the fucking claim yeah Yeah. it's a it's a bold-faced lie yeah um they were probably just friends and nobody really knows because any i mean anybody the only two people who really knew were jane and bill and Bill was miserable and said he hated everybody. Yeah. And Jane lied about everything. So we mm-hmm. just, we simply don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Bill went to Deadwood to die. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why he went there. Oh, he, he went was, there to he drink was in, gamble until yeah. he died. So that's yeah. all he wanted to do. Now, whatever the nature of their relationship, Jane hero-worshipped him. And she took it hard when, within a month of their arrival on August 1st, 1876, while Bill Hickok was shot in the back of the head while playing poker at Nuttland Man's Number 10 Saloon by a man named Jack McCall who he completely whipped at poker the previous day. Now, Hickok was holding a hand of two pair, black aces and black eights, which is why that's still known to this day as the dead man's hand. And the fight started because he took all his money and Bill felt bad for him and offered him... Gave him money to pay for breakfast. Offered him money for breakfast and he took it as an insult. Mm -hmm. Came back the next day and shot him. Now, the story of Jack McCall's trial can be an episode in itself. It's insane. It is. And, and he actually went on to be tried twice, violating his constitutional rights against double jeopardy, although that's a bit of an iffy question in the territories. Uh, it's also worth noting that when Hickok's corpse was dug up to be reinterred in the new Mount Moriah Cemetery, it was found that calcium carbonate runoff from the hills and the groundwater had mummified Hickok in a very interesting way. His flesh had been completely mineralized. All the soft tissue was gone, and when the supervising minister tapped the corpse with his cane, he compared it to tapping a brick wall. The guys who moved the body estimated it weighed over 500 pounds. That's pretty sweet. That's that's kind of cool. That's yeah. pretty sweet. So so Bill's still out there. Yeah. Boulder. Mm-hmm. 
Boulder Bill. The proves that her autobiography is nothing but crap. Like she didn't even know the right place where he died in it. No. Although <laughs> when she later died, apparently he Bill by the end of his life wanted nothing to do with Jane. He realized she was a complete pain in the ass. So a bunch of his old friends, as a joke, when Jane died, decided to bury her next to Bill. <laughs> <laughs> it was done, done out of. They, they had an odd sense of humor in the West. Yeah. Um, now, Jane took Hickok's death hard, and it was said that she went into a tailspin of drunkenness for a solid week that stood out. Yeah, it's, it, she was drunker than usual. Yeah. Well documented. Well documented. Now, she had to make a living, though, and was soon back working wherever and however she could. Now, she worked for Al Swearingen at the Gem, some say as a working girl, others say as a bouncer, and did the same for uh, Dora Dufran as well. However, she managed to make herself truly useful when in mid-August, a couple weeks after Hickok's death, a smallpox epi- epidemic began to strike Deadwood. Now, Jane was crucial in the effort to fight this. She managed to get her shit together enough to help local doctors organize a quarantine tent and help uh, to nurse many of the patients back to health, no doubt saving many lives so she, at risk to her own. So she must have had it at one point. Um... Maybe. That's kind of what... It's It's a prevailing theory is that she must have been exposed as a child. Yeah. Because she didn't, she didn't get it. There are also a certain facet of the population, a small facet, that are by their nature immune to smallpox. Mm-hmm. Now, it's maybe one in 500 people. Jane Probably could have been one of those nothing could well. live in her blood. That's fair. It was like 80% whiskey. Yeah. Nothing... nothing <laughs> well, I mean, this was... And this was not the whiskey we drink today. This is the stuff you melt a wagon wheel in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's... So, um, yeah, she, uh, she also helped in cases of stabbings or more run-of-the-mill injuries, helping to nurse the victims back to health, thereby uh, letting the doctors get, a, get about to the real business in camp, which was mostly checking the prostitutes for VD. And um, it, this led the Black Hills Weekly Pioneer to state of her, quote, Calamity possesses so many good and tender qualities of heart that whenever sickness or trouble overtakes her, the derogatory elements of her life are not remembered by the thinking portion of our people. And, quote, there's a lot of humanity in Calamity, and she is deserving of much praise for the part she has taken in this particular case. Now, as 1876 rolled into 1877, we don't have many details about how Jane spent her time in Deadwood, but we can assume it was pretty much the same as before, going from job to job, raising hell in the process. So they Finally, got, They just got tired of writing about it. <laughs> pretty much. Well, actually, they didn't. I got tired of writing about it. <laughs> okay. I, oh, I mean, there are a... I, I mean, there are... There's an article every week about what Jane was getting up to in the de- in the Weekly Pioneer. I mean, really, it was. I mean, it was just oh, she got up to this this week. She was here this week. She's traveling here. She's coming back. It it, it is, it's it's a reality show in print version. So, it was finally in 1877 that a full profile was written about Calamity Jane, a full actual biographical article. Truly introducing her to the world at large, it was written by uh, newspaper man Horatio Nelson McGuire, which other newspapers picked up and reprinted word for word, which was a common practice of the time, and this made national circulation. It reads, quote, There was nothing in her attire to distinguish her sex as she sat aside a fiery horse, save her small, neat-fitted gaiters and sweeping raven locks. She wore buckskin, gaily beaded and fringed, and a broad-brimmed Spanish hat. She comes from Virginia City, Nevada, from a family of respectability and intelligence, lie, donning male attire in the mining regions where no restraints were imposed for such freaks, she took to the road and has ever since been nomadic in her habits. Now one of a hunting party, then participating in a mining stampede, again attached to and moving with a freight train. 
and it is said she has rendered service as a scout. She has had experience as a stage driver and can draw the reins over six horses and fires both rifle and revolver with dexterity, firing as accurate as a Texas Ranger. She is still in her early womanhood, and her rough and dissipated career has not altogether swept away the lines where beauty lingers. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Uh, There are other statements about her that aren't quite so rosy. Uh, Clark Tingley, uh, that's an unfortunate last name. It is, really. (laughs) An acquaintance of Jane's told a news... Yeah, he he told a newspaper, quote, She chews tobacco like an old-timer and spits like a ward politician on election day. Adding that, adding that she was, quote, the hardest case I'd ever met in the form of a woman. Uh, you had Monty Hawthorne, a writer who shared the trail with Jane, describing her as looking like, quote, a busted bale of hay. <laughs> she drank too much, talked too much, and let her chewing tobacco get away from her. Meaning, just tobacco spit, just dribbling down her face. It's yep. like Danny DeVito tobacco yeah. spit. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, amazing. Uh, Jane. Now Jane helped her own place in. Jane helped her own place in the. God damn it! I'm just picturing like at the end of uh, the end of Batman Returns where he's the penguin and he's like, is that like weird black blood like dripping down? Like, oh my god! Now, Jane helped her own place in the press on at least one occasion when she arrived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and stopped by the local newspaper office. Enlisting the help of a passerby to write a note, she left a message for the editor reading, quote, Print in the leader that Calamity Jane, the child of the regiment and pioneer white woman of the Black Hills, is in Cheyenne, or I'll scalp you, skin you alive, and hang you from a telegraph pole. Do you hear me? Don't you forget it. Signed, Calamity Jane. (laughs) Subtle. Uh, Jane spent the next several years traveling around the West, Doing what she did, but she always returned to Deadwood as a home base. Uh, during this time, her popularity continued to grow in spite of small spates of trouble with the law, uh, including U.S. Marshals pursuing her across several territorial lines for selling whiskey without a license. Uh, a traveler who was touring Deadwood in 1879, uh, one Rolf Johansson, reported, quote, Jane is a hard customer and travels on her muscle. She is very handy with either fist or pistols, and it takes a good man to get away with her. In the course of an evening, I saw her stand off with a beer glass, a big burly bullwhacker called Taylor, who was drunk and tried to impose on her. She kicked the shit out of a guy with a beer glass. I like this. The, the dude's highlight of his trip to Deadwood is just watching Jane beat up dudes. Yeah. <laughs> That's the postcard he sent back. He, he also added... She would stand in the middle of great circles, cracking a bullwhip. Nobody could crack a whip like Calamity Jane. I never heard anything like it. When he, she made a right good crack, the men would whoop and holler and stopped for a drink. They simply raised the devil around that camp. As the 1880s rolled around, Jane traveled further and more often, visiting her sister Lena on her ranch in Lander, Wyoming, and successfully taught all of Lena's children to mimic, to mimic their Aunt Calam's cussing, much to the parents' consternation. That's awesome. <laughs> now, perhaps this time spent with her... like my niece. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if I ever have nieces or nephews, it's on. Angela, I hope you're listening. Just be prepared. Uh, now, perhaps this time spent with her family put the idea of settling down into Jane's head because she pops up in Miles City, Montana... In 1882, living and working on a large cattle ranch, where she had apparently met a man she called her husband by title, if not by ceremony, 
and she had apparently even given birth to a son she named Little Calamity. What the kid's actual name was, we don't know. She even told the local newspaper, quote, that she had been entirely regenerated, and that during the balance of her days she intended to lead a quiet, domestic life, visiting town only to occasionally hear the band play. Now, who this husband is exactly, we don't know for sure, as she actually never mentioned her, him by name in her autobiography. Uh, she never used the plural pronoun we at any point. Uh, there are records of a man named Frank King working at the ranch, and Jane did adopt the name of Maddie King as a, as a pseudonym for a short time, so this might have been the guy. Uh, tragedy did strike soon after, though, as it almost always did with Jane, when Little Calamity died of unknown causes, and Jane soon set about returning to her old ways. She spent a lot of time traveling the West Coast. Newspapers placed her in Spokane, Washington, San Francisco, Portland, Oregon, San Diego, and she was reported in Arizona and Texas in 1884. And it was in 1884 that she took, a, took her first swing at the life of the entertainer, joining the Liver-Eating Johnson Troupe, <laughs> named after a man who was said to have eaten the livers of the Crow Indians he killed after they'd massacred his family. So, again, subtle. Not, not the most creative name but it gets the point across well these are these are nicknames up there with like the gangs of new york boiled oysters malloy yeah (laughs) still my favorite and still jeff's favorite hello jeff malloy friend of the show uh the troop held demonstrations of cowboy skills crow war dances and storytelling from john curley who claimed to be the only survivor of the battle of little bighorn spoiler alert he wasn't he was not (laughs) uh and stories from jane herself Uh, Again, during most of the 1880s, Jane moved from place to place, was said to have gotten married several more times, uh, the most interesting and tragic of which is her marriage to a man named Bill Steers. Uh, Now, nine years younger than the no longer conventionally attractive Jane, let's say that to be kind, Steers was was the definition of an on-again, off-again lover. The problem was that in their off-again periods tended to come after Steers would get drunk and and attack Jane often with stones, wrenches, boards, or hatchets. Wow. Um, and, well, but at one point, uh, he was arrested. He went to trial. Jane testified against him. He received a fine for attacking her. And immediately after the trial, they were seen drinking together and then disappearing together out of the saloon. Yep. So, yeah, this isn't just a, yeah. a new thing. You know, it's you, not. you see a lot of people going back to abusive boyfriends now. It's not new. It's not. It it's never, not it never was. No. Uh, now, she always took him back. Uh, and by 1888, Jane had given birth to a little girl named Jenny. Or, sorry, Jessie. Uh, although her autobiography, she never actually claimed that Steers was the father. Although the timeline works that he was. Uh, she finally split from Steers in 1890, leaving the little girl with her in-laws and went back to wandering again. Uh, for a period of several years, Jane made a living how and where she could, but what she didn't anticipate was that her name had begun to acquire international renown through tellings of her mostly fictitious exploits in a series of dime novels, uh, essentially the precursor to pulp magazines, known as the Deadwood Dick Stories, <laughs> written by a Philadelphia playwright named Edward Lytton Wheeler. Now, these stories, with 33 of them published over the course of 20 years that featured Jane, sold more than 5.1 million copies in 16 countries between 1877 and 1897 and were based completely without factual bias but probably did more to cement Calamity Jane in the public consciousness throughout the entirety of America than any of her actual exploits. Now in 1893, Jane apparently made another attempt to settle her life down 
falling in love with a man 15 years her junior named Clinton Burke. After a whirlwind courtship, they married, and he took in her daughter from her marriage to Steers, raising her as his own. And from what we know, Burke actually seemed to be a pretty good man. Um, it, it seemed like Jane had finally found a guy who was going to treat her well. Uh, he was kind and devoted to Jane, and when she decided to pick up stakes and travel again, especially to revisit Deadwood, Burke tagged right along. He went right with her. Now, when Jane returned to Deadwood in 1895, she was greeted with fanfare, newspaper articles, even a fundraiser held in a saloon to raise money for her daughter's schooling. But at this point, she was seen more of an oddity at this point, a relic of Deadwood's rougher, less cosmopolitan past. Because by 1895, Deadwood was a very different place. It was accessed by the railroads. It had electric lighting. You know, it had... I mean, it was a, It just wasn't the rough-and-tumble well, mining camp. The future was there. Yeah. It had a telephone. Had, yeah, had a telephone. It, yeah, it was just not the rough-and-tumble mining camp that she'd grown to, grown to love back in the 1870s. It, she was also yeah. markedly older at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and soon the media became very, very critical of her and printed many attack stories of her raucous behavior. Some of them true, some of them not. Didn't slow down, did she, though? And no, she didn't slow down. She, was, she, still, <laughs> she still went hard. Um, but something changed when she gave a long, in-depth interview to a female journalist, in itself a rarity, uh, named Marion Fox, who instead of focusing on her exploits as a frontierswoman, was the first to really try to get at the woman inside, talking about her childhood, talking about her relationships, talking about her children, talking about marriages, trying to get the whole story of Martha Jane Cannery instead of just the wild exploits of Calamity Jane. And you have this girl who'd experienced tragedy from a young age and was trying her best to make her way in an unkind world, and this seemed to unlock something in Jane. She felt the desire to go out into the wider world so that folks could start kind of seeing the real her and not just hear the story secondhand. Now, Jane had done some work as a feature act with a few performances of Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show in 1893, and while many biographers point out that this is the company she toured with extensively, that's not entirely correct. She instead took up with the touring company of C.E. Cole and George Middleton, two men in a, who had made their uh, start founding dime museums, which were um, which featured exhibits dedicated to lowbrow entertainment for the working class. You know, this isn't the art museum. This is essentially, you know, freak show, dioramas of, you know, horrendous crimes, all sorts of stuff. And they founded a whole bunch of these dime museums in many major American cities. As a matter of fact, there was a Cole and Middleton Dime Museum on Smallman Street here in Pittsburgh, right across from where the Heinz History Center is now. Yep. Hmm. And so, in January 1896, Jane took a train to Minneapolis for her first performance with the Cole and Middleton Traveling Tour, earning $50 a week to regale audiences with tales of her exploits in the West and to meet the real Jane Cannery. In order to promote her public appearance, she authored, with help of a ghostwriter, of course, as she was functionally illiterate, a long autobiographical pamphlet to tell her story. This is the one that we had, we've been referring to oh, this man. whole episode, and it's a it, is, it, it is so, it is <laughs> it is a septic tank of a piece because it, it is so it is full of shit. Available in its entirety via PDF. Yep. Yes. Just search it, download it, enjoy it. We all read it, and it is bullshit. Uh, now she spent most of the year going from city to city, including yes, Pittsburgh. And uh, charming audiences with her wit and storytelling ability. Because apparently she was very good at it. She could win an audience over like that. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, apparently I mean, she would crack jokes. She was making people laugh. And she made everything entertaining. And if you, you think of where she came from, it would, yeah. you would... She was 
a scout in the army. Mm-hmm. She worked in a mining camp. She was drinking in these bars. You learn to be social. You do. In such you learn a way. how to and, talk and, to people. And she was always a spectacle. Mm-hmm. And that might have been one of the very few things she enjoyed. It was essentially being a spectacle, for better oh, yeah. or for worse. Now, the engagement, uh, this engagement didn't last long. Uh, by the beginning of 1897, she returned west, picking up her old itinerant ways once again. Uh, her approach differed this time in that her primary source of money was selling copies of her autobiography and promotional photographs. So she became that dude on the street corner handing you a copy of his mix CD and then asking you for five bucks. Man, you know what? That like The pirate attendance has been down so much. That I haven't even seen that dude this year. Yeah. Oh, no, I take it back. I saw him on opening day. But yeah, it's, I haven't seen the dude selling his mixtape for a long time. You want to increase the team's payroll? Go see the games. Just get on SoundCloud. Come on, bro. <laughs> <laughs> now, by this point, her life was truly going downhill, though. Clinton Burke had finally left, and she was suffering from the effects of acute alcoholism. The nature of her appearances became more like an, again, like an oddity or a relic of the past of the Old West in a rapidly modernizing development. The, the Old West was dying. You know, everything in the West, with the exception of a few small pockets, was becoming very modern. And she became a sort of walking joke. Uh, One incident had her in the Judith Hotel in Billings, Montana, where the bartender on a dare slipped into her room, stole some of her undergarments, and tacked them up above the bar. Now, Calamity, having learned of the affront, stormed in, put the barrel of her pistol in the bartender's mouth, and promised to kill him if he didn't take them down and apologizing. And only after intense negotiation where the man promised her free booze for a week did Jane finally decide to let the man live. It's probably the the wrong person to fuck with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jane was the definition of a loose cannon. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, as the, tw- as the 20th century began to dawn, Jane's long life of carousing and hard living on the trails was finally catching up with her. She was in her late 40s by this point. She was ill more and more often. She had a harder time selling her memorabilia, and she couldn't get the work she used to as her body was nowhere near as strong and resilient as it used to be. Now, she found herself living in a series of county poorhouses, accepting aid from the state for the first time in her life, and the stories of her misfortune began appearing in newspapers around the country. One person who took pity on her, supposedly, was a woman named Josephine Brake. Uh, She was an Easterner who was a tireless researcher and promoter. Brake traveled west, spent several weeks tracking Jane down, and when she finally found her, she offered her comfort and an easy life back east. Jane responded by, quote, crying bitter, burning, boiling tears all over the ill-kept cot on which she lay, and promised to be a good woman all the rest of her life. Now, eventually, Jane traveled with Brake all the way to Buffalo, New York, where Jane soon realized that she kind of had been duped, and that a life of ease was not in the cards. Now, Brake had brought her to Buffalo as storytelling talent for the Colonel Fred T. Cummins Indian Congress and Wild West Show. Being put on Wild for the... Wild West Shows were probably so cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, they were probably so cool. Yeah, they been. Man. Well, and imagine... And this is also a world without television, without movies, really... You know, maybe you have theater and you have dime novels. So finally, see, so you so you read all these Wild West stories and all of a sudden here it is in the flesh in front of you. Now, don't get me wrong, it was very theatrical, very contrived, but you don't know what an Arapaho chief looks like yeah. up close. You don't, you know, you're not used to seeing people dancing around, trick shots. Rooting. Tooting. <laughs> all that stuff. 
Um, and yeah, the, sh- the show was being put on for the 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. Uh, she was well received by audiences in the media, but she was stewing under poor pay and enforced sobriety. And the fact that she was in Buffalo. And yes, yeah. Tucky Brown, Tucky Brown. <laughs> do we have that clip? <laughs> don't, don't you do it. Don't you tell me how to live my life. <laughs> now she negotiated a deal where Cummins bought out her contract from Brake, and Jane finally got some good pay. And out from under Josephine Brake's watchful eyes, she proceeded to get completely shit-faced on a, like a two-week bender, so much so that the Buffalo Observer's headline read, quote, Alas, Calamity Jane, the aged celebrity, overcome by liquor, arrested and released on suspended sentence. Mrs. Martha Burke, the original Calamity Jane of Wild West fame, was discovered by a constable reeling from side to side, insensible with drink, near the exposition gate. Dealing with the scorn of uptight Eastern Victorian society and after allegedly trying to assault the judge at her hearing for this arrest, she left Buffalo in disgrace and once again was forced to return west. Slowly making her way back via west via cities like Chicago and Des Moines, she fell into abject despair and poverty. Finally making her way back to Billings, Montana, she tried to settle into work once again, only to begin, to begin living the life of a true street wastrel. Practically homeless, and having to steal to survive, you're making me just play it. <laughs> Look at the dancing. We're going to link to this. <laughs> if you look close, Calamity Jane's in this. <laughs> just passed out drunk on the grass. <laughs> yeah. Man, the 80s were special. That was a sweet oh. laser noise. Yeah, also, uh, if you guys are from Buffalo, we're sorry. Uh, not about making jokes about Buffalo. We're sorry you're from Buffalo because that town is terrible. I've been there. It fucking sucks. <laughs> the chicken wings are fine. You can get wings here. You can get wings anywhere. The chicken wings. And what you just here. heard there was Chris really <laughs> torpedoing our efforts to break into the eat of the Western New York market. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'll go as far as Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> so, Listen, I've had a shitty fucking day. Yeah. <laughs> I hate Uh, Buffalo. (laughs) So, yeah. So, Jane was practically homeless. She had to steal to survive. Uh, She allegedly attacked a female store clerk with a hatchet, although she caused no serious injury, and she was soon driven from Billings. She finally made her way back to the one place she knew she still had friends. Good old Deadwood. Good old Deadwood. Deadwood. She's, what, pushing 50 while she's attacking people with her? She is, yeah, she's 50 years old at this point. Tossing fucking beatings on people. <laughs> now, upon her return to Deadwood, she found she actually did find work. She found a place in the brothel of her friend and former employer, Dora Dufran, cooking and cleaning in return for food, lodging, and a modest wage. She uh, apparently calmed down somewhat, although occasionally she still went on serious drinking sprees. But it finally seemed like she'd found a measure of peace and calmness in her advancing age. Although, sadly, she finally had to pay for a hard life in existence. And while staying at the Callaway Hotel in nearby Terry, South Dakota, she began drinking heavily to try and treat a bout of pneumonia. You know, good old-fashioned uh, frontier medicine. Sucking back on Grandpa's old cough medicine? Grandpa's yeah. <laughs> cough medicine. <laughs> she, uh, she began to complain of severe stomach pain, and she soon passed out. The doctor was summoned, but on Saturday, August 1st, 1903, Martha Jane Cannery Burke, Calamity Jane, died at the age of 51 from complications due to pneumonia and severe intestinal inflammation. A sad end to 
even with all the tall tales, what was certainly a pretty remarkable a life. Fascinating yeah. life. Yeah. So ends fascinating. The, yeah, so ends the story of Calamity Jane, who still remains a figure of legend and mystery to this day. Many films, plays, and books have been gone on to be made about her since her death, and her featuring in songs and TV shows still goes on, culminating, as we have said, in what I think is her best portrayal in Deadwood. I agree. So, yeah, what do you guys it's, think? It's really tough to beat that one, Calamity Jane. What are your thoughts? Man, it's it. Her life is just. There's so much tragedy in there where you mm-hmm. get all of the drinking. Yeah, like you. And it's she. Yeah. Never well, I had, think it's where you get her entire persona. Yeah. Because I, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the whole thing, the masculine dress, the hard drinking, the shooting. All of that seems to be almost a defense mechanism that was put up as a result of all the tragedy she experienced when she was a kid. I get it. I absolutely understand it. And she was almost definitely horribly abused. This is a girl who's working as a 15-year-old prostitute. Yeah, she did not live a a life of means. I mean, I know know we've joked about this, but I mean, she went through hell. Oh, she absolutely did. She went through hell. She had a hard life. And... and it's also, I mean, it makes sense. And part of why she stands out so much is, I mean, to be a woman in late 1800s America sucked. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, she had a she had a kid that she immediately gave up for adoption. Yeah. Nobody really knows why. Um, there was another, another woman came forward later. Jean Hickok claimed to be her daughter. Yeah. Uh, wanted her pension, her share of Jane's pension, because Jane served in the military. Yep. And uh, it's difficult to know if the claim is true because she produced letters from Jane, and Jane was functionally illiterate. Yeah, supposedly illiterate. Yeah. So, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of dubious stuff that really happened in Jane's life. We really don't know. Mm-hmm. But her, her, the 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 myth of Jane might be more than her being full of shit. Like, I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Is she's a a Wild West figure. Mm-hmm. She's up there. I yeah. mean, it's it's almost like Paul Bunyan levels of exploits mm-hmm. that you get from Jane. Oh yeah, this is up there with Paul Bunyan, Pegasus Bill, mm-hmm. John Henry. Yeah. Now this is, and it's it's less so than like Wild Bill Hickok. Yeah. Because we know an awful lot about Bill, but Jane was she was a transient. She kept to herself. Uh, she was an alcoholic, and she so even if you found her, she was probably passed out and pissed herself. She was also, without a doubt, very very tough. Oh yeah, and she made her own way. Because until she ended up in those poorhouses in Montana in 1901, she never accepted help from the state. No. Don't get me wrong. There was there was a there were periods in her life where she had the the whole Blanche Dubois approach of always relying upon the kindness of strangers. But I mean, she made her own way. And this is in a period where if you were a woman in America, you couldn't vote. You couldn't own property in most states. You couldn't with deposit or withdraw money from any kind of bank account without your husband's permission. And if your husband died, you couldn't inherit the estate. Yeah, you couldn't get the money back. I mean, it, you were women at this point were meant to be docile, submissive breeding machines. And that is not what Jane Jane and was yeah, and Jane all. stood up and gave it a very emphatic fuck that. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know, Tim. What are your thoughts about Jane? She was crazy. <laughs> oh, she was absolutely. She was she absolutely. Was, she was. Yeah, crazy as a shit house. I, I just. I agree with you guys. Where it's in her upbringing, like the her past made her the way she was. Like, I mean, was there, a, there are a lot of mechanism for sure. Uh, like, and there is. A wall. I'm sure she had some kind of mental illness. I haven't sat this down and parsed it and tried to give an amateur diagnosis, but it's it's almost certain that she, she had some sort of mental illness. Addict. 
I mean, I mean I'm, she's I'm certainly an addict. To it, so I mean, it, that's certainly an addict. Yeah. It, it just which is now I mean considered, an and it illness, makes you but, wonder too: is was did a lot was a lot of this brought on by her childhood trauma? I would think so. Uh, I would think so too. But yeah, it's it's she still knew how to tell a story. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, she did know how to spin a yarn. That's she made a living at it later in her life, and that's part of why she was so popular too. I was talking to Chris, like wondering if, like, while she was a scout, she, you know, served as a nurse too for, you know what I mean, for injured soldiers. And well, flight. they think that's probably where her skill in treating those uh, outbreaks mm-hmm. in Deadwood came from. I'm just wondering if she maybe borrowed some stories from some dying soldiers. Oh, easily, easily could have done. Yeah, you, we, we discussed that done. one earlier. That was a, a pretty interesting thought. Well, but that, we still do that, too. That's not necessarily a pathological thing. No. We tell funny stories that our friends tell us. You know? Yeah, but she was kind of placing herself in that. Like, whenever she was... That's where it becomes... That's stories, where the pathology comes in. the Battle of Little Bighorn. Yeah, that's and, where the pathology comes yeah. in. But she was also an alcoholic. So yeah. some of this just might have come out. We've all talked a lot of shit when we're drunk. Oh, yes. oh yeah. Well, her whole autobiography reads just like yeah. listening to a drunk person talk about how great they are. It really does. No, I man, when I was working in nightclubs, I listened to so many guys go on these screeds to impress women about the stuff they'd done in their lives. This reads like every single one of those dudes. I mean, take 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 away the vodka soda and the affliction T-shirt, and this is what we've got. It's, it's, I mean, it, it, it's really it. So. Yeah, guys, I don't know if you guys have anything else to add or any remarks, thoughts, questions, queries, limericks, haikus. <laughs> Man, that Deadwood movie was really good. Yeah, it was really good. It was really yeah, good. Yeah, I it again, if you have not watched it, the Deadwood TV show on HBO, it's on HBO now. The Deadwood movie, they both are just fantastic. And the show itself is about 15 years old now. It still holds up. It's still it's incredible. It's still incredible. It's still incredible. I mean, I've watched through... I've probably watched the entire series six times in my life. Yeah. And every time, it's still just as good. It was one of those things where, like, I bought the the seasons as they came out. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Like, I have the box I, sets. Yeah, like, you really don't do that with television. Especially now in, like, the streaming era. Mm-hmm. But even then, like, on HBO, you could still watch this shit. Oh, yeah. But, like, I bought all of them, and I still watch those. That's very Shakespearean. It is. There is an absolute eloquence to the swearing. It's unbelievable. It's on a different level. Well, again, 1.56 fucks per minute. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. That's pretty it was, good. It was in the pilot whenever... Uh, Ellsworth, the prospector, yeah. raises his glass and says, "May the good Lord fuck us for the limber dick cocksuckers we are." We are. And what a great line! Yeah, what an unbelievable line! It just reads so well. It's in pentameter. It is. <laughs> yeah, they don't write them like that anymore. So speaking don't. of uh, of toast, what are we drinking? Oh, oh my God! We're drinking a variety of different beers. I'm drinking a Cigar City High Lie IPA. That's one of our go tos for the show. Yeah, I'm keeping it. You're keeping it, you're you keeping it PA with the old Yingling tradition. Uh, Yingling was brewing beer back when Calamity Jane was out there busting skulls. She probably had one when she was in Pittsburgh. <laughs> no, she probably did. I don't know if she was a beer drinker. She was a whiskey drinker more yeah, than I'm, anything. I'm drinking a weird uh, five-gallon keg of it on her journey from Cheyenne like to Denver, from Laramie to Deadwood. Bucket. Well, that story about her, <laughs> she was riding bucket. some fort and then she passed out drunk and ended up like 90 miles away from us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, she stole a wagon and meant to take it on a one-mile joy ride and ended up 90 miles past her destination. Oh, yeah, she wrecked, she wrecked the wagon. 
90 miles past where she intended to be. Yeah, I got a little, what do I got here? A little hitchhiker. Sorry, yeah. the sun went down. Now it's crazy dark in here all of a sudden. I'm drinking Stranger Than Me goes with apricot and blackberry because I am the alpha hipster. It's the beard. <laughs> I suddenly smell kombucha. <laughs> and uh, we're, also, uh, we're also sipping a little bit of uh, Calamity Jane's favorite tipple. A little bit of... Yeah, got a couple glasses of brown. I'm not even 100% little, sure. A little bit of brown, brown liquor. I got a lot of brown liquor on the yeah. shelf. I'm Chris not has a lot of brown liquor. So, uh, if you're ever in the kitchen, uh, swing by. I'll pour yeah. you a glass. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's going to do it for this week, guys. Um, got some, uh, some special thanks. Of course, first and foremost, thank you to our friend Tim Sladisky for joining us today. Tim, we enjoyed having you here. You're always welcome back. Thank you. Thank Tim, you for you, having me. You actually have a pretty cool hobby. Yeah. And, and we haven't talked about it yet. And it's that you are a competitive frisbee golf player, that, and I that think that's true. I think that that's dope as shit. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> There's a big tournament this weekend at Deer Lakes. If anyone wants to come check it out, and I, I, I think you should. If you've never played, I have played frisbee golf. I haven't done it in a long time, but I played at Deer Lakes. The course is nuts. Nationals are played there now. Yeah. So and worlds. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Because yeah, they pumped the shitload of money into. I remember they were building tee boxes. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, of course, is also uh, thank you to our friends, the Bloody Seamen, for the use of their music in our show. Hey, please check those guys out. Hit up their Bandcamp, download, go to some of their shows. Their shows are crazy fun. Uh, I don't know that anything's on the docket right now. Nope, but as soon as something is, we will be the first yeah, to let we'll you know. definitely share it. Uh, check them out on Instagram. Uh, like I said, go to Bandcamp, spend a couple bucks. Their music's, very, their music's good. It's very fun. Yep. Um, uh, as always, of course, if you like what we do, you think we might be... Uh, Worthy of a couple bucks. Just like uh, Calamity Jane, course, wh- whoring herself yeah. out. This podcast is always going to be free to listeners, but if you would like to financially support us for as, as little as a dollar a month, you can uh, subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash trrpod. We have a new patron. We have a new patron. Who and is I, it? I haven't told Rob. I've let it kind of know. I have been waiting with bated breath. <laughs> we have a new patron. Uh... And it's a it's a very close friend. You know him. You love him, Mr. Michael Black Samarnet. Ah, the Padre the himself. Padre. Mr. Padre's now a patron, so Padre gets some exclusive content. Yep. Be Special like shout out to you, Padre. Love you, buddy. We love you, and uh, we'll see you on the rotunda real soon. Um, Swing by the kitchen sometime. Yeah, come join us. Come record with us. We know you. Uh, know just as much weird, useless shit as we do, oh, right? so, if not more. So you're always welcome. Um, if you uh, want to follow the podcast on social media, Chris, you can hit us up. Uh, like, if you ever want to send us an email, you find something cool that you want to send us, link to us, whatever. Uh, trrpod at gmail dot com. Uh, as always, you can find us on Instagram at trrpod, uh, and feel free to tweet us at podcast trr. You can check us out there. So and of course, you can follow. just search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades on Facebook to find our Facebook page. And as well as YouTube, our mm-hmm. YouTube channel. You can find me, Rob, on Instagram at MeatNeck. You can find me on Twitter at MeatNeck2. I sent two tweets this week, which is a record for me. It's big for you. It's, it's big. big for you. Uh, well, we had one of our tweets from uh, at PGH Renegades kind of go viral with the, the JB Shuck one. And mm-hmm. now we have uh, the new Raccoon Chronicles. Yeah. We're following the adventures of the Pittsburgh Rally Raccoon, uh, Thomas Frank Raccoon. God, I hope he's okay. So this is fucking raccoon at the game, right? <laughs> and it's just crawling around these girders next to us, and people are looking like, oh my god, it's a rabbit. Like, guys, it's nine o'clock. Fuck. 
<laughs> no, it's nine o'clock and fireworks just went off. This is, so this they, is when they come out. They, they come out when dark of, falls. They put a bunch of shit out to try to catch it. They put oh, a, marshmallows in a trap in one they of the put boxes. The traps and out and apparently overnight it just cleaned out every goddamn <laughs> one. It ate all the marshmallows and just never set off any of the traps. It just keeps doing it. Uh, the traps were spotted today, Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, they were raccoon free. Yep. So he continues to elude authorities. His reign of terror. <laughs> He's a wily one. I love him. Uh, Tim, love Tim, him. any uh, any social media links? Anything you want to plug before we wrap up for today? Say so you're not you're not real. Uh, you don't have as <laughs> as much of an online presence that I do with no, my sixty nine <laughs> twitters and four hundred and twenty nice. Instagrams. I lay low. I'm nice. off the grid. He's off the grid. He's trying to stay low. You got to get one for the. I'll follow you around with a camera. We'll get some sweet shots yeah. and we'll promote the shit out of you. For You're your doing what we call pulling a Snowden. <laughs> oh no! That All was right. also that was also one of the the big uh, highly sought after moves in the Deadwood uh, brothels. Pulling yeah. a Snowden. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, also, special thanks go out to uh, Jack, our canine outreach specialist, who was especially uh, lazy today. Yeah, especially lazy and quiet today. I, I so. think it's because the lights off. I didn't expect it to be this although, dark, so he is sleeping. Although he he made a noise that sounded I didn't like see him move. <laughs> it sounded no. It, I think that was if, if you listen. I want to say it was probably right around the thirteen minute mark. Listen for the sound of a dog fart in the background, reverberating <laughs> against the wood floor. What the hell was? I don't we know. know when there's a dog fart involved. So <laughs> that's true. So uh, yeah, join us next time where we're going to examine uh, a singular event that was uh, pretty much one of the most catastrophic events ever to hit the Caribbean. The earthquake in 1692 that destroyed the pirate den of Port Royal. Getting back to our roots, baby. Yep. Going back to a little high rootin' tootin' high sea shooting. Yeah, well, a little less rootin' and tootin', a little more yo-ho-ho. So yeah, guys, uh, until next time, be well. And of course... You know what we're going to ask you to do. Don't make me say it. Don't go- Okay. Just say it. I will. I will. Hold fast. <laughs>